church. How we doing? Man, God is good. Amen. It's one thing to, uh, you know, sometimes in life we get in our feelings, don't we? You know what I'm saying when I mean that? Half the room's like, I have no idea what he's talking about. We get in our feelings, meaning we look at our circumstances, we look at life, and we start feeling sorry for ourselves. We start feeling bad for ourselves. And then you sing a song like that, and you think about all I have needed, my God has provided. And it changes your perspective, doesn't it? It should, right? God is good, and he is not just faithful to us, but he is generous, kind, and good to us. Amen? All right. We are continuing, if you're new here with us today, we're continuing uh, in a series through the book Song of Songs, which was written uh, by King Solomon, uh, one of the kings of Israel. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of intimacy in the marriage relationship. And so uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of what intimacy can and should look like in many ways in the marriage relationship. It was a song written really by Solomon, but written between two people. Solomon kind of writing this thing to and for his bride. And the disclaimer I have to give every single week, and I know you're tired of hearing it, but the disclaimer is this, is it is not a G-rated book. Okay? So sometimes we hit PG-13 stuff. Like, sometimes in church I say the word sex. And it makes us really uncomfortable but just look at your neighbor, just whisper the word sex real quick. It'll get you to get out of your system, and we'll be okay, all right? But we're good, because actually last week was the most PG-13 of all the weeks. Last week was the wedding night. Y'all remember that one? Yeah, that one was intense. That one had me coming off the stage feeling a little hot and red, right? I was like, I don't know if that's okay, but hey, it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, there we go. Um, we, so if we walk through, if you remember, we've been walking through weeks one and two, we're all about the foundation that Solomon and his bride are building for their marriage. We, we really walked through what the foundations of their love were going to be. Then last week was, of course, the wedding night. Today, uh, as we get into it, today the honeymoon is over. We get to see their first fight. And if you remember your first fight in your marriage, if you've been married, I bet it was a fun one. Right? Because you're thinking, oh my goodness, who is this monster? Right? Who did I marry? Right? Because here's the thing is, is, what's funny about it is they have their wedding night, that very intimate night, and then the very next thing the Bible records is a fight. That's funny, isn't it? Like there's no, to me that's, there's no irony lost there, right? Like they have this beautiful wedding, the wedding night, everything's great, and then immediately they start fighting, right? So it's fun, and, and if you remember, weddings or marriages, they kind of go through different phases, don't they? I mean, you have the honeymoon phase that we talk about, and they call it the honeymoon phase. The word uh, literally means sweet month. Honey is sweet, and the moon phases last about a month. So honeymoon means sweet month. So the honeymoon phase lasts about a month, and then it's over quickly. The next phase that you go through is really this phase we call disillusionment. If you know, you know, right? Because what happens in that is that moment where you get in the fight, 
or you begin to look at that person and you go, oh my goodness, this is who you are, right? Like you look at things like you didn't put the toilet seat down, like, or, or oh my goodness, that's how you squeeze toothpaste? You're a monster, right? Like you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so the next phase is kind of conflict arises and you begin to go, who is this person I've committed the rest of my life to? <laughs> and it gets scary. <laughs> but here's the truth is that all relationships have conflict at one point or another, don't they? All, all relationships, right? Now, now, maybe not like your Starbucks barista, although if they make it wrong, you might have some conflict there if you're like, you know, a diva. But, right, they didn't put—I said a half Splenda, not a whole Splenda. Like, okay, chill, we don't measure the Splendas, right? Um, I worked at Starbucks for a while, and I still have some hurt there in my soul. Um, chill, lady! Right, I have a funny—well, we'll move on. I got a lot to, to cover today, right? I need to go through some therapy, okay? Um, But here's the deal. All relationships have conflict, especially our closest relationships. Especially our closest relationships. So, of course, if you're married, you're going to have conflict, right? And if you don't, there's something very wrong there. Like, I'm not saying you should be fighting all the time. Like, oh, we have plenty of conflict. Our marriage is healthy, right? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if there's never any conflict, and that means one person's usually getting run over by the other person, if there's never conflict, that means one person's never speaking up for themselves, and, and, and so there's some issues there. The goal is not that we never have conflict in our relationships. The goal is that we learn to resolve the conflict in a healthy, godly, honoring, God-honoring way. In essence, we want to fight right. We're going to fight. You're going to have conflict. It's going to happen, right? If you're, you're here today and you're like, we don't fight, okay, you're a liar, or you haven't been married long, okay, right? Like, the goal here is not to never have conflict, it's to fight right. With that in mind, like any good fight, you go to the, you go watch a, you know, watch a fight on TV, like UFC or boxing, they always lay down the ground rules before, like no hitting below the belt, no elbows, right? Well, here's, here's what we're, I'm saying that today, no hitting below the belt, no elbows, meaning as I'm talking, I don't want to see any, you hear that? need to listen. This is not for your spouse. This is not for your partner. This is not for your friend. This is for you. Got it? God's word here today is for you, not for that person you want to elbow. Now, maybe they need it too if they're here, but this is for you. So we're going to make that commitment that as we talk, we're going to think about ourselves. We're going to examine ourselves. We're going to think about what God wants to say to me not to that person that we want to give the elbow. Everybody with me? Four of us. Good. Okay. As it starts off, the next chapter actually begins telling us about a dream that Solomon's bride is having, right? Now, so, so actually what we learn here in chapter, I think, five that we're kicking off in, five is not a, a vision or is not telling us something that has actually happened, but it's a dream that she has. Now, we know dreams are powerful, aren't they? Dreams tell us about things. Dreams, dreams reveal to us sometimes something that we're feeling or seeing or experiencing. Like, you ever have a dream about a hurricane? You wake up, and you're like, yeah, life ain't good right now. That's right. That's right. You, like, dreams are powerful. They speak. God speaks through dreams to us. God reveals things to us in dreams. Our, reveals, our dreams reveal us our emotions, and dreams are powerful, right? Like, how many of us have woken up, and your spouse is just mad at you all day long, and you can't figure it out why? And you ask, and you go, you cheated on me last night. What? In my dream, you cheated on me, and I'm mad at you. How dare you do that? I'm sorry, right? 
Have you been there? We've been there, right? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, brother. Dreams are powerful. So we don't, we don't know what causes her dream, but what I, we would imagine is there's some instability in her marriage with King Solomon. She's feeling something, whether it's spiritual, emotionally, there's some conflict there. And so she has this dream that speaks to the issues that she's having with her husband. And so we're going to go through this dream. We're going to look at it. We're, and at the end, I'm going to give you a few things that I've kind of taken away from this dream that I want to share with you, okay? So let's jump in. The first scene is the fights. All right. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. She says, I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. A sound, my love was knocking. So he's knocking on the door. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my hair with droplets of the night. So in her dream, she's saying, I was trying to sleep. But I couldn't. My heart was awake. She's saying something was wrong. I was trying to sleep, but there's something wrong. There's something's amiss, and I just can't quite uh, sleep. And we find out soon the reason why. Her husband's knocking at the door, and when he says, I'm drenched with dew, that means the dew's already fallen. It's early in the morning, so he's returning home early in the morning. He's, or he's coming home late, essentially, because the dew's falling. On him. He's come home late. He's knocking on the door, and the reason why he's knocking on the door is because she's locked his butt out. You been there? No amens on that one. So whether he's out with the guys, maybe he was out having a good time with his buddies, maybe he was working late. I, I kind of think, my opinion is because he's King Solomon, he's doing a lot of kingly things, and he's out in meetings and doing all these kinds of things. He's working, but over and over and over again, work keeps winning over the wife. Meaning, meaning he keeps choosing work over the wife, work over the wife, work over the wife, and eventually she's had enough of it, and she says, fine, you come home late, go find a hotel. Go somewhere else. She's mad. She's locked his butt out. But, but here's the thing about guys. You see this in his response to being locked out. In his language, we see the obliviousness of men sometimes, because throughout Song of Songs, he's constantly called her these pet names, right? My darling, my dove, right? Right, perfect one. Right? He uses all these pet names, but this is the only time in Song of Songs he says them all at once. Y'all catch that? He knows he's in trouble, and he thinks he can smooch his way out of it, so he's like, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, Mook, smoochie, right? Come on, baby, pookie, let me in. He's, he's trying all the, honey, pookie, baby, come on, let me in. And then we continue to see his obliviousness because the Bible makes it clear that not only has he come home late, not only is he trying to smooze her to let his way in, but he's come home to be intimate. Imagine that. The audacity. He's come home late from work again. She's locked him out because he's mad. He's knocking on the door thinking he's going to come in and get to be intimate with his wife. And all the women said, uh-uh, right? I don't think so. She ain't, she ain't having it. Look at her. He said, he gives her all the pet names. Let me in, Pookie baby, let me in. Verse 3, she says, now this is messed up what she does here, though. Look at this, verse 3. I have taken off my clothes. How can I put them back on? Yeah, some of you ladies know exactly what she's saying to him right here. I've washed my feet. How can I get them dirty? She's saying, honey, I'm washed up. I've cleaned up. I'm smelling good. I'm naked laying in bed. But you ain't coming in. This is the Bible's version of, I have a headache. What she's doing is punishing him for being late. 
Now, it's right for her to be mad. It's right for her to be frustrated. It's mad for her to be upset. But what we're seeing is a woman who's mad, and she's going to punish him in her anger, which isn't right. Which isn't right. I mean, maybe a little bit. Like, maybe, like, punish him a little bit, right? She says, you're locked out, and I'm in here naked, and you ain't getting to come in and enjoy any of it, because I'm mad at his response is really interesting, actually. Verse 4. She says in her dream, My love thrusts his hand through the opening, and my feelings were stirred for him. I rose to open for my love. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, and the handles of the bolts. I opened to my love, but my love had turned and gone away, and my heart sank because he had Left. Now, we don't, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know exactly what's happening. But the picture that it's painting here is not that he broke down the door and said, I'm coming in. There's nothing you can do about it. But there's something. The door refers to her. And so he does something here that she's mad at him. She's frustrated with him. He does something here that stirs the affections of her heart, whether to make her angry or to make her go, okay, fine, I'll let you in. But he does something. He says something, does something physically to stir. And she finally says, okay, fine, I'm not going to be mad anymore. I'm going to let you in. And as she gets up, remember she's dreaming. So in her dream, she's maybe about to forgive him, but she goes to open the door, and he's gone. He's left. He's ran away. And maybe, maybe you've been there in a fight. There's yelling, there's fighting, there's frustration, there's anger, there's words being said that shouldn't be said, and one person just drops the zinger, man, like the good line, which, which by the way, I know you guys know me. That's one of the things that's not fair for Katie, because I am sarcastic, and I am a butt, and when I get angry, I can drop those zingers, and it's not fair, and it's not right. But in this situation, he maybe drops the zinger, he drops the line, he does something to stir her where she's willing to come and open the door, and he's gone. He said, fine, you won't let me in, I'm going to the hotel, good luck. Good luck. They've had the fight, they've hurt each other. One, he, by coming home late, by him not considering her, by him not caring for her, her by trying to punish him instead of deal with it in a healthy way, they've both let out the anger and frustration. They're both reacting to one another at this point. It's not proactive. They're not choosing what they're doing. They're acting or reacting to one another at this point in their anger that's piled over. He's, she's opened the door. He's gone. They're both in this feeling of frustration, anger, lost, wondering what's about to happen. And the question is, what happens next? Because now there's a choice that has to be made. She, she can be mad at him and choose to fight for reconciliation, or she can fight for healing. She can give him the silent treatment. Amen? That's a good one. Sometimes that's just fun just to have some peace in the house, right? Like, let's just be silent for a while. She can choose bitterness and anger to fester. What's your go-to move here? What do you do? Y'all afraid for that one, right? Think about it, though. When, when it happens, when you get in those situations, the fight, the anger, you're going at each other, and then you go away. You say, let's just take a break. I just need to get away from you for a minute. You walk away. What, what's your go-to? Think about it. Is it healthy? Is it good? Is it God-honoring? Probably not. And you're probably looking at me like, yeah, Mike must do it perfectly. No, I am a butthead. I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot when it comes to fighting with Katie. And God has to correct me constantly. Constantly. But if we don't recognize our go-to move, if we don't identify our go-to move and, and look at it and say, is that healthy? Is that God-honoring? Is that good? Is that healing or is that bad? We're just going to keep constantly reacting and doing it. You see what I'm saying? 
We've got to identify, what do I do? Consider, is that good? And then either change it, react, or choose to act better instead of reacting, right? Change what we're doing, honor God, what we're doing. She chooses, she says, I'm going to pursue reconciliation. So she says, uh, I'm going to pick up halfway through verse 6. So he's gone, and she says, but I sought him. I sought him, but I did not find him. She's, she's, she's going out in the city looking for her guy. He left, so she's looking in the city trying to find him. I sought him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. And this is where it gets really weird in, in Song of Songs. Like, this is where things take a strange turn and maybe tells us a lot about her dream. She says, the guards who go about the city, this is verse 7, found me. So the guards of the city, remember she's the queen of the city, and it says the guards who's supposed to protect her, who's supposed to take care of her, supposed to help her as the queen, it says the guards uh, of the city found me, they beat me, and they wounded me. What in the world? That's the opposite of what these guys are supposed to be doing. She said, they took my clothes from me, the guardians of the wall. So she's going looking for her guy, and the very people in the city, the guards of the city who are supposed to protect her, beat her, strip her, and leave her there. They abuse her. Now, I I thought about that, that verse right there a lot this week. Because I think it represents a lot of things in this dream. I think it represents a lot of things in her marriage that she's facing. I think it represents the obstacles in her marriage because the guards were there to protect the city walls and she's trying to find and get to her husband. She's trying to figure out where he is and the guards keep her from, trying, from being able to get to him. I think, it, I think it represents the obstacles in her marriage keeping her from finding healing. Um, but I also think they represent... I think they represent her feeling of losing safety and a foundation in her marriage because she's married to this guy who's supposed to protect, provide, love, fight for her, and in the middle of the fight, he leaves. I think she's revealing to us in her dream her sense of losing safety in her marriage. She's thinking, is this what marriage will be? Is this who I married? Somebody didn't fight for me? Are the obstacles too great? Is this person not who I thought this person was? And I think this fight is being revealed in her dream that it's shaken the foundation of what she thought she had. And, and the truth of the matter is that in these types of relationships, any relationship, but it's specifically the marriage covenant, we have these moments where we face insecurity and we look at the relationship and we ask the question, what is about to happen? Can I run away? What's going to happen here? Is it going to go down? And what she chooses to do in the situation is really interesting to me. She turns to her friends. She turns to her friends. Look at verse 8. She says, young women of Jerusalem, they've come back. They've, they've kind of been talking sometimes throughout Song of Songs. She turns to her friends. She says, young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my love, tell him that I am lovesick. She, it's, this is an earnest language here. She's saying, I need him. Help me find him. And her friends say, verse 9, what all good friends say, what makes this one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you will give us this 
charge. Essentially, her friends do what all good friends do. They said, what makes this guy so great? Girl, he's a bum. Girl, he left you. You don't need him. Let me find you another one. Y'all see that? You don't, you don't need him. What makes him so special? Girl, you can go get you one ten times better than that guy. Right? Because what do we want in that situation? We're in this conflict. We don't know what's going to happen. We turn to our friends, and we want our friends to say, he's a loser. Amen? Oh, I heard it. <clears throat> Better watch out, buddy. And we want that because we want the affirmation that if this thing falls apart, if he goes, then I'm going to be better off. But that's really the opposite of what we want our friends to do, isn't it? She doesn't need her friends to tell her that he sucks. Sorry. She needs her friends to say, let's go find him and let's, let's try to fix this thing, man. Let's try to make it better. So, so her friends say, what makes him so great? What's so good about this guy? And she says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what makes him so great. Verse 10, she says, my love is fit and strong. She begins to think about, when they ask her, who is this guy? What makes him so great? It causes her to begin to think about who this guy is that she's married to, who exactly this King Solomon is. She says, my love is fit and strong, notable among 10,000, meaning he's, no, you put 10,000 men together, he's going to stand out. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, which again speaks to the soul, right? Besides flowing streams, washed in milk and set like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, mounds of perfume. His lips are lilies dripping, dripping with flowing myrrh. His arms are rods of gold uh, set with beryl. I don't know what beryl is, but sounds awesome. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis and lazuli. Again, don't know what it is, but sounds great. Wish Katie would say that kind of stuff about me, right? His legs are alabaster pillars set on a pedestal of gold. His presence is like Lebanon, as majestic as the cedars. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. And then the last phrase, this is my love. This is my friend. Young women of Jerusalem. In her response, she remembers who he is. Not who she's mad at, not, not the fights, not the harsh words, but at his core, who he is. And so she's feeling insecure about where they are. She begins to think about who he is and defend him to her friends and remember who he is. Man, he's fit. He's strong. He's a fighter. He's, he's, his eyes are like doves. He's got a good soul in his heart. He's majestic. He's able. He's, he's willing to fight for me. And then she finishes with, this is my love. Oh, I love him. I, I love him. This is my friend, meaning it's, it's deep, man. It's deep. It's more than just, it's more than any relationship I've ever had. And as she remembers who he is, she remembers how good he can be and how wonderful he can be and how strong he can be and how much he can love for her. And more than anything else, He's her friend, and what they have is deep, and it's built on a strong foundation. And then her girls in verse 6 say, well, where can we help you find him? They hear that, and they go, well, let's go get this dude. I want one like that. And then what's, we what's weird, it's this twist, because you've got to keep remembering it's a dream. In, in verse 2, look at what she says. <laughs> My love is already home. 
She says, my love has gone down to his garden in beds of spices to feed the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my love's and my love's, my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Remember, all throughout Song of Songs, the vineyard and the garden has referred to her. And so they say, where is he? Where can we find him? And her response is, he's returned to his garden. He's come home. Which is really weird because I thought he was lost, didn't you? Like, what do you mean? He's here, but you've been looking for him? Girl, you're weird, right? Figure it out, right? It's, it's, it's no small thing. Because in her dream, the thing that brings him home is her remembering who he actually is. Y'all catch that? That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. It defeats the fear. It's like he was always there. Because, but because they were fighting, because they weren't connected spiritually, emotionally, physically, she felt like he was gone. But then they reconnect spiritually, emotionally. And by the way, when she says he returned to his gardens and he's enjoying the garden, it's a physical reconnection. Seth. I know I said the word again. And as they reconnect in those ways, it's like he was never gone. And I do, I do want to point that out. And I'm not, I'm, this isn't like a point in my sermon, the sex aspect of this. But I do think that it's interesting that the scripture points out the physical nature of their reconciliation. Because I do think that's interesting. I do think it's important that as she says, she's remembering who he is. She's remembering who he is uh, emotionally and spiritually. And then they, they come and they reconnect intimately, right? And it's not a bullet point in my sermon, okay? But I do think it's interesting that as they're disconnected in all those ways, there is a physical reconnection there that happens as well. And, and I think it speaks to, right? I'm not like, you're like, Pastor said when we fight, we've got to have makeup sex, right? That's not what I'm saying, okay? That's not what I'm saying, okay? But I do think there's an interesting aspect to the reconnection, both physically or spiritually, mentally, and physically well. And I think it speaks to the power of, of sex and why it's such a special thing. And I think it speaks to why it's a sacred thing. I think it speaks to why it's a spiritual thing designed for us in our marriage relationships. And so don't, don't get that, don't get lost, don't let that get lost on you. I think it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty important thing there. And so they reconnect and she says, my love has come home and then in the rest of chapter 6, and I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but the rest of chapter 6 is him just basically saying, doing the same thing to her that she did to him. You're amazing. You're my dove. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. And he tells her everything he told her on the wedding night, by the way. You remember, everything on the, that he told her on the wedding night that he said she was, and then some. He's saying, now that we're married, you're more than I thought you were. You're better than I thought you were. You're more amazing than I thought you were. This thing is deeper and bigger and better than I ever thought it was. And so it's not just her that's remembering who he is. It's him remembering who she is. And as they see each other, as they remember one another, they're able to come back together. And it's this absolutely beautiful thing. In essence, he tells her, there is no woman on earth like you. You say, so what do we do with it? What do we, what do we do with this? Go home and sleep and have a dream. It'll solve everything. 
let's be honest though sometimes when we get in a really good fight that is what we need to do and they say don't go to bed angry i'm like dude sometimes you need to go to bed because what you are right now is a jerk and you need to sleep so you can wake up and be a nice person yeah was there some elbows there i said no elbows just playing so what do we do with this four four quick things and then then we'll respond four, four, four quick things one in our relationships, and again, this isn't just for marriage, man. This is for all of our relationships. The first thing we need to do is we need to act, not react. Act, not react. Because in this story, both people made mistakes, right? Now, he started it out by being an idiot and coming home late again, right? He made the original mistake, but then when he came home, she, she punished him for it, which was wrong of her to do that, and then his response is to leave, which was wrong of him to do that, right? So everything they're doing, right, is ultimately becomes a reaction to one another. So she's upset, he's upset, and what happens in the fight, and you know this because we do this in our own fights, instead of de-escalating the situation and trying to act to heal, act to make it better, act to respond correctly, what we do is we see what the other person did, we see what the other person said, and we react, don't we? We get angrier, and we get in the good line that just, uh, anybody else or just me? Y'all like, Mike, you got some problems, dude. You got some issues. And what happens is our fights and our disagreements become one person, nobody's in control anymore, because you think if I get the good zinger, I win. No, 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 you lose. When you're reacting, you're losing. When you're reacting, you're not in control anymore because your action is then based on what the other person does. And when your action is based on what the other person does, that means you're always just going to be responding and reacting to whatever they do, and you have no control. You've lost. And so have they. Because when you got two angry people just reacting to one another, what you get is some really just dumb stuff. Amen? We, we've got to learn to act, not react. We've got to choose intentional actions that address the situation to, that aims to bring healing and resolve to the conflict. And again, she had every right to be angry at him. But that doesn't justify all of the reaction. Number two, number one, act, don't react. Secondly, what I took from this is we've got to remember the good. We've got to remember who the other person is. Because in conflict, if you're, if you're like me, you begin to see the worst in the other person, don't you? you be, everything they do, you're like, you just did that because you're trying to get under my skin. You just did that because you're trying to make me angry. You just, did, you just said that because—and it all be, it becomes this thing where we view everything they do from this lens as this wonderful, evil mastermind that's out to get us. Don't we? Don't we? And what happens is we lose sight of who the heck that person is. Like, if they were this awful, evil, terrible person, why did you marry them in the first place? What's wrong with you, right? And I'm joking because I know sometimes we get in marriages and people really do do a good job of hiding themselves. So that wasn't condemnation there. But when we get in those situations, we've got to look at the person and do exactly what she does and he does, and we've got to look and go, okay, I know that you said this thing and it was really dumb of you to say that, but I'm able to see who you are behind it and work through it and figure out and, and see who you are, the good in you, the best in you. And it's kind of like we said in week one, 
when the way that we speak to people, the way that we that what we call people to is who they will become. And so if we only see the worst in people, if we're constantly looking at the worst in people, we're only going to see them as their worst. And so in this situation, what she does is her friends say, well, who's this guy? What makes him so great? She begins to remember who he is, the best in him, and it brings the reconciliation to their relationship. See the best in one another, and, and this one, when with the tag on of that, is when the other person makes mistakes, we've got to believe the best in them, and oftentimes believing the best in them is offering them grace. Because, man, we can do some stupid stuff, can't we? And man, when we do that stupid stuff, we would really love for the other person to extend grace to us, wouldn't we? It really would benefit us if we were able to offer that grace back to them. It's what Jesus does for us, amen? Number three, talk, don't walk, man. You don't have to add the man on there in your notes. Talk, don't walk, man. I think the worst thing that happens in this situation and the thing that caused the shake of the foundation and the insecurities, and remember the, 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 the guards come and attack her and beat her, and I think, I, think, I think what causes that is the fact that he left. And what I mean by that is I think that when he did that, it made her question, and I know we don't like to say this, but is the D word on the table here? Is he going to leave me? Is he going to abandon me? Is he going to run away from me? Is he going to divorce me? And I know that in our congregation, I want to say this with grace and love because I know that we have people who have all kinds of life experiences, who have been in good relationships, bad relationships. Maybe you're divorced in here and you've walked through that and it's been awful and terrible and it was necessary and needed and a good thing in your life. And so when I say this, I'm, this is no condemnation on anyone in here and whatsoever. This is about looking towards the future, okay? You hear me? Amen? It's about looking towards the future. But the reason I say we've got to talk, not walk, is because if we're in our conflict, and then again, this is if maybe you're at that point where you have to have that discussion, but if before that, if it's a word that you throw out there as a threat, if it's a word that we, okay, you're making me mad, you're upset me, maybe we just need to leave, maybe we need to get divorced, maybe you need to get out of here. If we use that as a threat in our language, then that's going to shake the whole foundation of what you have. You understand? If the threat of, I'm out of here, if you do wrong, I'm out of here, if that's constantly something we're throwing up, it's going to shake the foundation, it's going to cause insecurity in the relationship, you're just going to be constantly putting cracks in the foundation, and what your spouse, what your relationships need to hear from you is that I'm willing to fight for you, and when I said death do us part, you may have to kill me, but that's what I mean. And again, I'm not saying there aren't times when it has to come to that, but it can't be a grenade that we throw out to win the battle. You hear what I'm saying? It can't be a grenade. Your spouse, your relationships, your friendships need to know that you won't walk, you're all in, and that you will fight The last thing I would say on here, number four, and this is probably the most important one of all of them, okay? You can disregard the first three if we get this one right, all right? You're like, well, then why are we here, right? To get to this point. We got to get really good at forgiving one another. Because without that, you can't have a healthy marriage. Without that, you can't have healthy relationships. Because even your relationships, if somebody 
wrongs you, you're constantly just going to be holding that grudge and remembering it and holding it against them. And imagine that in a marriage. We've got to get really good at forgiving each other. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean they deserve it. But it is something that we're called to do if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to love one another well, and if we want to have a healthy foundation for the thing that God is building in your home. Amen? My hope for you today, my prayer for you today, is that wherever you are, wherever you are, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a friendship, maybe you're dating, maybe you're engaged, maybe you're uh, married, maybe you're, maybe you're, right, wherever you are, I pray that your relationships would be strengthened by these principles. That you would remember them. You would, like the Bible says, we would write his word on our hearts. Not, not my words, but the scriptures. That we would write it on our hearts and that, that, that you would take these principles even to your homes, that you would remember them. Maybe in points of conflict, you can step back and go, hey, hey, let's, do you remember what, do you remember what the Bible said about this? Let's talk about this. Let's, 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 let's instead of reacting, let's try to act uh, in, in grace towards one another and love towards one another, to bring healing towards one another. And my, and my prayer is that in your relationships, as we do that, as we apply that, that God would begin to work, that when you reach points where it comes to that breaking point, you don't know what's going to happen, that you would apply God's word and these types of principles to your life, and it would bring healing and grace and life. That you would look back and say, man, we're, look what God did. Amen? Would you guys stand up with me? The band's about to come out, and we're going to play some music, and there's some several ways you can respond here today. And the first one is this, is just simply to worship the King of Kings. Worship the Lord for His goodness, His grace, His majesty. The second way you can respond today, I would encourage you to respond, is to pray. <laughs> pray. Because maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you're like, man, I got it. I need to pray for my relationships. Maybe you need to pray for your Maybe you need to pray with your spouse and say, yeah, we had a big fight last night, didn't we? Yeah, I'm a jerk. Yeah, you were, but let's talk about it, right? Maybe you need to pray. Maybe, maybe you need to pray by yourself. Maybe you need to pray with a spouse, a friend. It, it's this room, and in this time of response, is a moment where people tend to meet Jesus. Amen? And so it can be a moment for you. And these altars are open for you. And so if you need to come and pray and spend time here, by all means, do it. And then lastly, a third way you can respond here today is we do communion. And every week here at the river, we pass out communion. And I know sometimes you might say, well, what is, what's going on here? What is that? Well, it's us responding to Jesus. Communion is something that God commanded, Jesus commanded at the Last Supper, where he said, this blood here, that, or this blood, this wine that you're about to drink represents my blood, which was shed for you at the cross. This bread you're about to eat represents my body, which is going to be broken for you at the cross. And it is to your salvation. And so every week, we give you an opportunity to take communion, and that is so that we can remember and worship God for his goodness, for the cross, for his salvation, for everything he offers to us and what that means for us, the forgiveness that comes with that. Amen? And so today, I encourage you to respond in one of those three ways, whether it's just to simply worship, whether it's to pray alone or with somebody you need to pray with, 
or respond in communion and worship Jesus for his grace, mercy, goodness, and his salvation. I'm going to pray for us, and I encourage you to respond. God, I love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you offer us because of the cross. That we may know healing and reconciliation and grace and mercy and love because we first have found it and have known it in you and what you did for us at the cross, that we may understand love and grace through your goodness at the cross, your resurrection, the salvation we find. And so, God, we respond to you today. We love you today. We worship you today in whatever way we can and we need you. God, I pray and ask that you would bring healing in this place, reconciliation in this place, hope in this place. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody say,